With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, I have with me Lauren Brickerman. Lauren is a member at Miller & Chevalier, together with Catherine Pappas, a counsel at Miller & Chevalier, and we take a look at the firm's Executives at Risk report for the summer and fall of 2019. Some of the issues we consider are, some of the issues we take a look at are an overall review of the Executives Risk report for the summer and fall of 2019. We consider some of the noteworthy investigations covered in the report, as well as some of the issues involving cartels uh, enforcement that's covered in the report. There was a significant trade secret criminal case that we consider. We take a look at a major extradition matter and then look at the Department of Justice's evaluation of corporate compliance programs from the executive perspective. I know you'll enjoy this episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I'm joined today by Lauren Briggerman. She is partner at Miller & Chevalier and Catherine Pappas, counsel at Miller & Chevalier, to talk about what I think is one of the great resources that this firm puts out, which is a publication called Executive at Executives at Risk. So, ladies, uh, first of all, let me thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Happy Thanks to be having us. So, uh, I guess, uh, Lauren, uh, it's been a while. Uh, actually, it's been way too long since I've had you on the podcast. So, I was wondering if you could remind the listeners what is Executives at Risk? Sure. So, Executives at Risk is a quarterly publication that our firm comes out with where we try to track key developments that affect executives and in particular in the area of white collar issues. So we report on new developments in white collar government investigations, court rulings, policies, um, and anything like that that would affect company executives. And we tend to focus on FCPA, cartel, government contracts, criminal tax, and other areas of fraud. And in particular, because there are so many cross-border investigations these days. We try to focus as well on extraterritoriality and extradition issues. Well, and I was going to announce or at least detail why I think this is such a valuable publication for the compliance practitioner, but you did a much better job than I think I ever could. Uh, and I really, uh, the information you guys present in the non-FCPA world I think is significant because, as you said, cross-border investigations, but I also see the other white-collar crime that you guys report on as really driving a lot of the discussion around uh, fraud, bribery, and corruption. So um, with that, I was wondering if you might uh, talk to us a little bit about 
noteworthy investigations around pharmaceutical executives and the ongoing opioid crisis? Sure. Um, so to give folks a, a little bit of a background on the lay of the land there, uh, just in July, the Department of Justice indicted a drug distributor along with two of its executives, uh, including its former compliance officer, uh, for conspiring to distribute controlled substances. Uh, there have not been that many um, government prosecutions of individuals in these cases, so is significant in that way. Um, as a drug distributor, they were charged with not only distributing substances without a legitimate medical purpose, but also um, continuing to distribute after the DEA had already advised them of their responsibilities to ensure products were not being diverted for non-medical purposes. So, um, and just in May, a few months ago, a jury actually convicted five executives of a pharmaceutical company, Insys, um, including its founder, for paying doctors for prescribing more and higher doses of the company's fentanyl spray. So, um, the recent drug distributor indictment is kind of the next step uh, in what we're seeing in terms of executives being brought in. So, in terms of the that case, the emphasis case, uh, that I thought was a real, um, I don't want to say benchmark, but it, it certainly turned a lot of heads in uh, the legal world, not only as to the specific allegations against the company, but the DOJ's willingness to go against literally the, the most senior positions in the company is, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was their first real successful prosecution of a top pharmaceutical executive tied to this crisis. Uh, so the next case I wanted to ask you about was a really interesting case around cartel behavior. And the case in itself is greatly interesting. But from the anti-bribery, anti-corruption kind of FCPA perspective, we're starting to see more cartel or bid rigging or other things that may tr trend into antitrust. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the shipping executives who were uh, charged in a, a cartel scheme. Sure. And so the case we're talking about is actually part of a broader investigation into what's called roll-on, roll-off cargo shipments, and that's basically um, the shipment of cars and trucks abroad. So it's a cross-border investigation involving foreign cargo shipping companies and international shipments that have occurred through the port of Baltimore. Um, you know, candidly, it's one of the few cross-border investigations that's keeping the antitrust division busy. They've seen a significant decline in prosecutions of cartel cases in the past few years. Um, the reason is that the antitrust division had the auto parts investigation for a number of years. They kept them busy. Um, that mostly wrapped up in around 2015, and there's been a really significant decline in prosecutions since then. Um, but let me provide you a little more background on the particular indictments that we saw come down this year. So in June, there were two indictments of Norwegian shipping executives that were unsealed. So actually, they had been indicted, I think, the year prior. Um, and the indictments alleged that these executives participated in a conspiracy over about six years to allocate certain customers and routes for shipment of cars and trucks. Um, the executive's former company has already pled guilty and paid a fine of about $21 million. And four other companies have also pled guilty. 
in total in this investigation, we've seen 13 executives who've been charged as part of the scheme. And the difficulty for DOJ in prosecuting these international cases is it's very difficult for them to actually go after foreign executives. So while you've seen five companies actually plead guilty, you haven't seen any of these executives, I think, actually plead guilty. They've been charged. Um, I'm sorry, four of them have pled guilty, but um, the ones who are abroad are actually all fugitives, and so they have not pled guilty. They've just been charged. So this just shows the difficulty that DOJ faces in bringing foreigners to justice when they're located abroad. How would you assess this case in terms of executives needing to be concerned about the administration's ever-changing trade sanction policy? (laughs) That's a good question. I think it's a separate issue from the trade policy, but the trade policy should be of serious concern to executives. Over the past few years, there's been a concerted effort by both the civil and administrative, as well as the criminal enforcers, to hold individuals accountable in trade-related cases. And traditionally, it's been an area where corporate wrongdoing has been remedied mostly through fines and forfeitures and and other monetary penalties. But um, we think that there's going to be a change going forward, and there's potential for real exposure for individuals who are either involved in these crimes or supervised or directed them. So, um, you know, executives should certainly be on the lookout that trade is something that is going to be um, a key issue going forward in terms of enforcement. Uh, If I could turn to now, uh, if you don't know, I'm really a a trial lawyer geek from my uh, prior life. And this next case has just fascinated me on multiple levels for a long time. And it involves the uh, former Uber executive, Corey Lewandowski, who left Google and went to uh, Uber and uh, allegations of uh, theft of trade secrets. And the thing that so struck me about this case is he was criminally indicted. And I guess that's not something that I have seen very often. So I was wondering uh why you guys thought this had uh, risen to the level of a criminal matter and what it kind of means going forward. Yeah, so I think what's unique about this case, and you definitely flagged the criminal nature of it, and it arose out of the civil controversy between Google and Uber. Uh, Lewandowski had been um, an engineer and a founding member of the Google self-driving car project, and um, was kind of a key player in terms of the underlying allegations in the other case. As a result of that, the judge in that case actually referred the case to the criminal division for investigation of possible theft of trade secrets based on the evidentiary record he had before him. Um, and that was back in 2017. And then we saw the indictment this year. So um, unusual for a judge to do that, I think, and then you know, leading to the, the criminal case that we have now. I guess just the the number of times I've seen a judge make a criminal referral out of a civil matter has been less than a handful. And and from my experience, when a judge does that, the judge feels it's a very serious matter. And the prosecutors, whether it be a state, uh, a district, county, or a federal, they take that referral very seriously. Would would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, the judge is obviously very careful to say that, you know, he's not recommending a prosecutorial decision. It's ultimately up to them. But I think it is a, it's a unique thing for a judge to make that kind of a referral. 
we had an extradition case, and um, I want to tie that. Uh, we had a uh, this week or late last week. We had a guilty verdict in a FCPA case where uh, the defendant was a foreign national extradited to the United States. But the case you guys wrote about was Societe Generale. And uh, I'm always intrigued by extradition to the United States, uh, questions of fairness, questions of uh, legal treaties. How did you guys see uh, this French banker deemed a fugitive uh, by the U.S. judge? What does that mean for a non-U.S. executive going forward? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting case, and this comes out of the LIBOR investigation, which is also an antitrust-related investigation. And as we were just talking about a few minutes ago, the antitrust division has focused a lot on these cross-border investigations and has tried to go after foreign nationals and has been able to charge them but has had difficulty in really successfully prosecuting them because a lot of times they will just stay abroad and decide to um, gamble and um you know, perhaps make the decision not to travel, and then they don't have to actually deal with the charges. So this was an interesting case because it was the former head of Societe Generale's Paris Treasury desk who was charged, and she is a French national living in France, and she decided to actually try to fight the charges abroad. So she filed a motion to dismiss the criminal charges, and the judge ruled in May under an equitable doctrine called the so-called fugitive disentitlement doctrine that she was a fugitive, and as a result, she is not entitled to use the court system to dismiss the charges. And in terms of what this means for non-U.S. execs, I think what it means is when you're charged with crimes in the U.S. and you decide to gamble roll the dice and remain abroad, you can't avail yourself of the U.S. court system to fight the charges. So either you come to the U.S., submit to the jurisdiction and fight the charges here, or you remain abroad and you assume the risk that comes with being a fugitive. Now I'd like to turn to uh, one of my favorite documents this year, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 Guidance by the Department of Justice. And um, Miller has written extensively on this from the FCPA perspective, but I was really intrigued to get you all's opinion for the significance of this document from the executive's role and how you see this as either increasing or perhaps decreasing the potential legal and criminal exposure of executives under the FCPA. Sure. And are you referring to the new antitrust compliance policy that's come out? Right. Specifically, yeah. So that's really interesting because antitrust compliance has really lagged far behind FCPA compliance. And for those who aren't familiar, the Justice Department Antitrust Division has not, prior to this new policy, considered antitrust compliance as um, at either the charging stage or the sentencing stage. So their view has always been that if there has been a violation of the antitrust laws, then that by default means that the compliance program is deficient, and so a company will not be given any sort of credit for a compliance program. And so as a result, there really hasn't been nearly as much scrutiny or a look at companies' antitrust compliance policies up until now. But in July, DOJ just adopted a new compliance program, which is probably pretty on par with the FCPA policy. I mean, it tracks the U.S. Attorney's Manual. 
Um, but the antitrust division says that for the first time, they will consider a company's antitrust compliance program at both the charging stage as well as the sentencing phase. Um, so, and they have put out a publication that companies and executives should certainly take a look at um, to ensure that their companies are compliant. And I think what it means for executives is that they really need to take antitrust compliance very seriously, especially if they are high-level people, um, because the tone at the top will certainly be judged at their companies when it comes to, you know, if the, the company is involved in some sort of antitrust violation. And if you're the chief compliance officer of a company, it's time to really take this seriously and make sure that your company has in place a very robust antitrust compliance policy. If you don't, time to adopt one. Even if you do, it's time to dust it off, review it, and make sure that it complies with this new policy. Uh, there's one point that I think many anti-bribery and anti-corruption practitioners may not quite understand that you touched on in the antitrust compliance arena, and that is the two-stage or the two different times that the department, uh, the division, as I've now learned to call it, not the antitrust division, but the division would look at a compliance program, both at the initial assessment and at the charging stage. Could you maybe expand on those two as well? Sure. The antitrust division is unique and different from the fraud section, for example, because it has something called a leniency program. And what that means is if you're the company that is the first to come in and report certain violations and other conditions are met, then you you don't have to plead guilty to a crime and you don't have to pay any fines. And then separately, if you are not first in the door, um, you may get some discount on a fine, but you are going to have to plead guilty to a crime in the form of a guilty plea. So unlike the fraud section where you may be able be able to negotiate some sort of a DPA or an NPA, that typically hasn't been the case with the antitrust division. Now, under this new policy, the antitrust division is saying that they will consider awarding DPAs to companies who are not first in the door. So that would be sort of at the charging stage when they are deciding how the case is going to be resolved. Is it going to be by guilty plea or is it going to be by DPA? And it sort of remains to be seen whether the antitrust division really will follow up with this and um, award DPAs rather than uh, resolving everything else by guilty plea. The second phase would be the sentencing phase. So that really comes down to the fine that the company would be paying if it's not first in the door. And then I'd like to uh, uh, end with uh, last week we had an announcement, um, I believe for Brian Benchkowski, which was a new uh, task force or group at the Department of Justice to look at procurement fraud in uh, government contracts. And I was wondering if I could maybe get your thoughts around, number one, the significance of that task force, what it means for the white-collar defense practitioner and the executive um, who you guys routinely write about and, and uh, defend. Sure. So this new task force was put together to crack down on antitrust crimes in the government procurement process. And so for those who aren't familiar, bid rigging is an antitrust violation that the antitrust division does investigate and prosecute. And what DOJ is saying is that they're going to give 
bid rigging in the procurement process a, a really heightened focus going forward. The interesting thing about this, though, is this task force is really drawing from existing resources. So it's pulling from current prosecutors from the antitrust division and other parts of DOJ, such as the U.S. Attorney's offices, as well as investigators from the FBI and other agencies. It doesn't have a lot of new money, though. It looks like only under a million dollars is being allocated in new money. So it really is unclear if this task force will have bite. But that being said, if you're a company and you are a government contractor, for example, um, it's really important that you think very carefully going forward about complying with antitrust laws in the bidding process. And this new task force has a website with certain red flags to be aware of. And so we would recommend that all companies and executives take a look at those red flags so that as they're engaging in the bidding process, they're really complying. Well, it's just been a, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but it's always great uh, to talk to you all about the uh, most current executives at Risk Newsletter. I really want to thank you guys for the work you and the entire team does to put this together. It's a great resource for the compliance practitioner, the white-collar defense lawyer, executives, and, and people like me. So I look forward to the next one, and I hope we can continue the conversation. That sounds great. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another issue around FCPA compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.